We've been moving through the book of Colossians. We'll finish the book by taking selections from its fourth chapter in the next couple of weeks before summer and before everybody scatters. Although, frankly, where are you going to go on vacation that's much nicer than this, right? You'll probably have family come to you rather than you need to go anywhere else. There's a danger in the message I'm going to present to you in my explaining it and your understanding of it. There's no danger in the Bible itself. There's a danger in what we bring to the Bible and how easily we can fail to understand its clear message. The message itself is as clear as a beam of light. The trouble is the message of the Bible, the good news of Jesus Christ, is so contrary to anything else in our lives, anything we experience, very seldom even in the way other people treat us do we experience the grace that is announced in Jesus Christ. Everything in this world is predicated on achieving, on earning, on meeting certain standards and staying at those standards or suffering the consequences when you can no longer do so. School is like that. Your job is like that. Some people have discovered to their hurt that many, many friendships are like that. In other words, there's no true grace in them. There's no undeserved favor. There may be kindness, but there is rarely a truly sacrificial, all pay the whole cost, you do nothing for it kind of dynamic in anything we experience in the world. Everything in the world, including the great religions of the world, are based on the simple principle of achievement, of finding the rules and being taught the rules and doing the rules well enough for long enough that, so that someday, hopefully, God may accept you. And that brings extraordinary pressure into people's lives. One of the things that makes Mother's Day and Father's Day and all such days where family and relationships are highlighted, painful to many people is we come to those things naturally as children expecting grace and we don't receive it. We receive instead an invitation to achieve, to measure up, to earn it, and to keep it. The good news of Jesus, that's what we mean by the old English word gospel, is an announcement that achievement matters, but it's not your responsibility. The gospel announces that Jesus achieved in your place, that He did everything you should have done, that the holiness of God and His impossibly high God Himself standards were met by Jesus in human form. He was tempted in every way, just as you are, including disobedience to parents, I'm stunned by it. The Gospel of Luke goes out of its way to tell us that when Jesus was a child, He went home with His parents, and there it says He submitted to them. Anybody ever else have that child your whole lives? <laughs> Nobody's ever had that child. I was a pretty decent kid, but I got away with just as much as I possibly could. At the heart of my struggle with my mom and dad growing up, and even now in my 40s, was this issue of respect and honor and obedience. That never goes away. Jesus, from literal birth to death, 
did everything we could have done, we should have done, and did not want to do. And then he died on the cross and rose from the grave to offer it as a gift. So the announcement of the gospel is it's not a matter of achieving, it's a matter of receiving. It's a gift purchased entirely at his cost, offered for free to you. Someone has said to me many times, it's too easy. Yes, it's extraordinarily easy because it was so costly for him. That's the way gifts work. They're costly to the giver. They expect nothing from the recipient. If I were to offer you a gift and then call you the next day, say I give you a Bible today, and call you tomorrow and say, you know, that was a $50 Bible. Could you chip in 10 bucks? That wouldn't be a gift. That would be a bargain, but not a gift. A lot of people in their religious thinking formed in a world where it's all achievement. Imagine that Christianity is something like that, where God does His part and I do my own, and we meet somewhere resembling the middle in a cooperative program to save me and make my life better. Please understand, what we're about to read in Colossians announces the death to all such thinking. It's not a matter of achieving, it's a matter of receiving. Paul has been explaining that to the Colossians and inviting them to trust Jesus and reject his counterfeits now for most of the letter. Now he's going to come down to what that looks like in actual practice. He's going to tell them and has told them that at the cross of Jesus, all of their sin and shame, everything that separated them from God was nailed to the cross of Christ as if He were the guilty party so that they could be victorious, obedient, saved, safe instead. Now, in Colossians chapter 3, verse 1, he's going to turn the corner and he's going to explain to them this simple biblical truth, which is so neglected in our time. Here it is. We aren't just saved from sin. We're saved for a new life. Pardon was just the beginning. The good news goes beyond pardon for your sin. The good news announces the pardon of your sin, and that it's extraordinary and life-saving. That's the literal difference between actual heaven and actual hell, but it goes far beyond that. It's not just pardon, it's actual purpose. You weren't just saved from sin, you're saved for a new life. And as I read this fairly long passage, you're going to see that Paul switches back and forth between telling the Colossians who they already are and how they are to behave. And understanding that difference is the danger in this message, because this passage is loaded with how Christians are to behave. And we hear that with our old ears that are accustomed to being told to achieve, and we say, these are the things I must do so that God will accept me. No. Let me be crystal clear on that. That's why I'm taking all this time before we even read Scripture. I want to warn you against that bias that has been drilled into our old nature and way of living, that there is a list of things, and if I do them well enough, then God will accept me. A thousand times no. What this is announcing is that Jesus nailed his sins to, nailed your sins to his cross. That's in chapter, that's in the previous chapter in Colossians chapter 2. And the people who were once dead in sin are now to be dead to sin. 
And because Christ did this on their behalf, they died and rose again with Him. In other words, they already are saved. Now, because they are, here's, they are, here's how they are to behave. The gospel and religion have it in completely opposite terms. Religion invites you to behave so that you can become. The gospel announces who you have already become in Christ and asks you now to live up to it, to behave in keeping with your new identity. See the difference? One says, do these things and earn a new identity. Make the varsity. Get to the honor roll. Be nice enough or pretty enough or strong enough or well-earning enough so that someone will love you and someday you might get married. Go to that interview and crush that interview and impress them and beat the 25 other applicants and then if you're good enough, you'll be welcomed in. On your achievement, you will receive your status. That's religion. That's life. The gospel turns that on its head because God is that good and says, this is all that Jesus has done for you. He behaved in your place. So now you have already become who he died to make you. Now live accordingly. Walk according to your identity. Progressively become the person God has made you. You are, now be. Colossians chapter 3 verse 1 explains it. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on the earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with Him in glory." Are you getting the sense of this now? They have died. They have risen. This has already happened. You know, here's, what's your, here's what you're going to do about it. What Colossians chapter 3, verse 1 through 17 does is answer the question for us, which is this. How do we live up to, how do we behave as the people that we already are in Christ? How do we become in daily practice, how do you become with mean clients and ungrateful kids, and unreasonable parents, and ignorant bosses, and a dog-eat-dog -dog world where everything is set against you, it seems like, some days, how do you become in your day-to-day -day life the person you already are in Christ? That's what Colossians wants to tell this early church. That's what the letter of Colossians wants to tell the Colossian believers, and the first thing it tells them is in the paragraph I just read you. If then you have been raised with Christ, what are we to do? Since you've been raised with Christ, since this is your experience, you have new life in Him, what's the first thing Christians are to do? Seek things above. In other words, my language, you look up for your new priorities. You understand that your old life, because of Christ, is dead. Sin was dealt with at the cross. You have a new life, and now you are to set your mind. You are to, verse 1, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. That phrase, seated at the right hand of God, is loaded with biblical meaning because it pictures Christ resting from His saving work. 
He's enthroned. He's ruling. He's done. He's no longer dying. He's no longer suffering. He's finished. Your salvation is secure. So what do you do? Verse 2, set your mind on things that are above, not on things that are on the earth. Why? For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. Now, granted, this is spiritual language. It's abstract, but it gives you a picture that's simple to understand if you reflect on it a minute. Your life is no, ma- is no longer a matter of something that has to be achieved. Your life is hidden in Christ. You're as safe and saved and holy as He is. That's grace. That God would look at the depths of my selfishness. You ever catch yourself being selfish? If you don't, you're more selfish than you ever know. If you don't see it, pity the people around you. But I'll catch myself sometimes thinking in ways that don't look like Jesus at all. Have you had this experience? I think to myself, I'm a Christian. I've got a full library. I actually have the blessing of being paid to study the Bible and Teach it to people. How could someone with all of that think in the way I just did? Here's the announcement of the gospel. My life is not a matter of my achievement. My life, because of the finished work of Christ, where He's enthroned, seated at the right hand of God, all that is already done. My life is hidden with Him. I'm His. So when the Father looks down and sees that darkness in my heart, He sees, instead of my sin, He sees the righteousness of His own Son, the very thing that tripped me up and leaves me now ashamed and guilty, was met by Jesus Christ as He was on earth. He had the exact same category of temptation, but He walked in perfect obedience to God, and He's exchanged lives with me. And there's, there's nothing better than this. As you'll see as we continue to read this passage, one of the notes that keeps coming up that Paul tells the Colossians over and over again is, be thankful. How could they not be? You look up for your new priorities. Verse 4, when Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with Him in glory. Christ is your life. See, it's not a matter of belief It's not a matter of a creed that you affirm, and that gives you life. Creed and belief in actual historical facts and in the historical person of Jesus are deeply important, but it's not that creedal affirmation that will ever save you. It is Christ who will save you. He is your life, not the church, not even your belief in Him. It is Jesus Himself who will save. That's why Paul said from death row that he knew whom he had believed. I know the person in whom I have trusted. And Paul was confident that Jesus would be what we've just been singing about, a sufficient Savior to meet Him when they killed Him. What does a Christian do in view of his new identity? We look up for new priorities. That's discipleship. Christianity is often reduced to a set of new habits that make no real change in people's priorities. And we say things like this sometimes, mocking such people, he's too heavenly-minded to be any earthly good. You ever heard that? Listen, 
People who are truly heavenly-minded are the greatest force for good on earth. And all other do-gooding aside from this person of Christ falls short and is empty and hollow. And as it turns out, as we learn time and again from too many programs and organizations that set out rightly to do good, we find out that the leaders are self-serving and that the motives were mixed and that people use positions of doing good to actually enrich themselves. And when Christians behave that way, it does great damage to the name of Jesus. If you can't see Jesus very well because you've met some people who claim to follow Him, who behave nothing like Him, understand that is directly against what God's written, revealed Word to them is. It says, since you've been dead and and raised with Christ, you set your mind now on new priorities that will do and that will make an earthly difference. In other words, discipleship is a process of becoming who you already are, of making your day-to-day practice match the position that Jesus bought for you at the cross. So the first thing, look up for your new priorities, but Paul keeps writing. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. I want to read that again because it's so overlooked and so little practiced, including in my own life. First, Paul said, look up for new priorities. Verse 1, seek the things that are above. Verse 2, set your mind on things that are above. Make God's new revealed reality your priority. Then he says in verse 5, put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. See, that process isn't finished. Verse 4 told you that Christ is still to be revealed. When He appears, then you'll be like Him, but not yet. You're only on the road to that. Now you have a second responsibility. In addition to new priorities, Paul says, put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. And then he gives a list. Sometimes we read the Bible, we don't let the Bible read us. Ready? Be honest before God. Don't tell anybody else. But this is what is earthly in us. And Paul says it has to be put to death. It has to be killed off. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. Sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these you too once walked when you were living in them, but now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, an obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its Creator." Here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. A simple Bible study habit is to read looking for the things that God tells you that you are in Christ, in other words, your identity, and other things that He tells you to do, which is your behavior. This is a second thing, then, the Colossians are told to do. First, they said, since you have new life in Christ, look up. Your priorities aren't found here anymore. 
Your old way of thinking, your old goals, your old aspirations, those should die along with sin. And the ordinary, normal reader of this says, but there's still so much that is wrong in me. And Paul says, you're exactly right. There is so much of earth, this old way of living, this old way of thinking, this old way of feeling and wanting, there's so much of that left in me. And you're right. The Bible always describes reality. It's high-definition realism. It speaks of life as it actually is, not as we wish it might be. So even someone who has trusted Christ and knows Him as Savior and is beginning to lift his eyes up to new priorities finds much of the earth, much of this old way of thinking, living, feeling, and desiring in his actual day-to-day experience. What does Paul say to do with that in verse 5? Kill it. Man, that's, that's severe, isn't it? Can I offer you a word picture that some Christians, thank God, are experiencing in our church? The people who probably experience on a day-to-day basis what that means better than anyone in our church are people who were once addicted and are now walking in sobriety. They get up every day to live a new life, but to live that new life, they know they must kill old desires. And they do it a decision at a time. They do it a day at a time, sometimes moment by, by moment. They take their old way of living very seriously. They kill it. The Puritan John Owen explained it this way. He said, be killing sin or sin will be killing you. It's true. I once read a terrible story of children in a third world nation. I don't remember where. I do remember only 25 years ago, I think, that I read it. Children in a very poor country, unaccustomed to certain kinds of technology, and in the trash dump of their city, a radiation machine that was used to give radiation therapy to cancer patients had been carelessly thrown away. As it broke apart and people played with it and things came out of it, the children found what they thought looked like and were actually marbles. That's what they were to the kids at least. And they were beautiful and shiny and heavy. And they played with them day by day, not knowing that those materials were deeply radioactive. And every time they played with them and put them in their pocket and kept them by their bedside for safekeeping and went to sleep, playing with two of them because it was so cool to have these, this new set of marbles. They were actually killing themselves. In a few years, they all became very sick and most of them died. What were they doing? They were playing with something deadly. That's what the old life does. It invites people to enjoy themselves and indulge themselves. That list of sins we just read, they really fall into two categories, sins of sexuality and sins of anger. There's sexual immorality and there's anger, which produces slander and malice and obscene talk about other people. Paul says that is your old life. Verse 5, put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. Here are the sexual categories. Sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. 
We've almost deified covetousness. In other words, the desire to have more, to get ahead of other people, that's at the very heart of our value system. That's what we lift up as success. Paul says that continual self-seeking for yourself and for possessions and for triumph over others, that belongs to the old life. Not in this passage of Scripture, but what did Paul tell Jesus? It is more blessed to give than to receive. That puts everything backwards. These things, Paul says, are those things that should be killed off. Verse 9, do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off as your identity the old self with its practices, and you have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. In other words, the moment you trusted Christ, God is in you, remaking you, fashioning you into the image of Him which sin marred and stained and made almost disappear. And if you want a word picture and people who have worked in law enforcement can tell you this, what sin does when it is fully embraced is it dehumanizes people in ways that are actually horrifying. I've met some people at the very bottom and the very end of their rope that have indulged a life of lawlessness, and it really is as if their eyes were dead inside them. Because sin kills. That's what it does. Christ is life, but sin is, the Bible tells us over and over, is death. When this new way of living is embraced, it does away, for instance, in verse 11, with differences between people, including ethnic differences that cause so much trouble because of human hatred in the world. Paul says the status in which you were born into the world no matter, no longer matters. You are now, you belong to Christ. End of verse 11, Christ is all and in all. You have to kill it off. You have to put it off. Missionary colleague of mine who grew up in Korea had a terrible experience as a child which resulted in an amazing story. In the village where they lived, they had open septic tanks, big pits that were filled progressively with all the terrible things that go into a septic tank. That's just part of life, but one day the kids got careless and two of them fell in. There was no harm except, well, they were, I mean, they sank all the way down. They had to swim up and climb up. And they walked down the road, clamoring for, can you guess who they wanted? Did they want mom or dad? They wanted mom, that's exactly right. (laughs) Mom! Mom! I can see his little eyes peering out from the... Yeah, sorry. He tells it better than I do because he lived through it. But I remember it well. She saw them coming about 100 yards off and started smelling them about 50 yards away from the house. And she said, stop. Don't take one more step. And she had them peel off those filthy clothes, and she bathed them right where they stood. And right where they stood, she brought, once they were perfectly clean, she brought clean clothes. She took them into the house. It's not a bad picture of what Jesus does for us. 
He deals with the sin that is making us stink. Stink to God, stink to ourselves, stink to others. He deals with it. But here's the point. He doesn't invite you to put those dirty clothes back on. He clothes you in the righteousness of Christ. It's an exchange. And He does all the work. You are the one that got yourself quite literally into the mess, into the trouble. He's the one that saves. He's the one that cleanses. And this is the life that results. Verse 12, put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved. That's who you are in Christ. That is received. Because you are chosen, because you are holy, because you are beloved, first, Paul says, look up for your new priorities and kill off, put off the old way of living. Understand that those old stinky rags were never suited to you. They were never God's purpose for you, so be done with them. Be ruthless with that old way of living. Get rid of it. That's what people who are walking in sobriety understand. They understand that they can't coddle their temptation because if they coddle it, it will kill them. When I sin, it's almost always because I think I can go several steps closer toward the things that will eventually bring me down, and then I discover that I'm powerless to resist the final temptation, and the trouble is I enjoyed all the initial stages. Paul says, be, be done with that. Kill it off. Put it off. Put on instead as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved. Look at the difference. There's no immorality. There's no self-seeking. There's no wrath. There's no malice. Put on instead compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. Compassionate hearts is your attitude toward others that bears their burdens with them. Kindness is grace in your treatment of them. Humility is lowering yourself so that they can take first place. Meekness is that virtue that allows you in conflict to criticize the behavior of other people, but they'll experience that as a help rather than a condemnation. If I have one failing that drives me crazy as a father, it's that when I correct my children, I often lack meekness. I'm right, they're mistaken, it needs to be corrected, but probably if they were very honest, they would tell you they experience it about half the time at least as a condemnation rather than a help and a love to them. Meekness addresses that. And patience, that's your response to unbearable people. That life looks like this. You are bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other. Here's the standard for forgiveness among Christians. As the Lord has forgiven you, what? So you also must forgive. If God spared me my life, how could I insist on you repaying some earthly offense, on justice being done? If the wrath of God is coming against all of this old way of living, but I've been spared His wrath by Jesus standing between me and the holiness of God, how can I then turn to you, someone who sinned and was forgiven for a new purpose just as I was, and say, He can forgive me, but I can't forgive you? No, that's obliterated at the cross of Christ. What are we talking about here? We're talking about putting on your new character every day 
day. You are chosen, holy, and beloved. So you clothe yourself. You put on the righteousness of Christ. It's yours already. It's your identity. Your life is hidden with Christ in God. That's who you already are. But you must daily choose to wear it. Every single one of us chose to get dressed this morning. Some of us made better choices than others. <laughs> Arguments may have been had around dinner tables. You're not wearing that to church. Why not? And that's just the husbands, never mind the kids. <laughs> but putting on is exactly that picture. You have the life and the character of Christ. That has been offered to you as a gift. So you realize that you are now in Christ. You look up past this earth to your new priorities. The things that dog your steps, the stench of the old life that still lingers around of you, you're ruthless with it. You cut off its supply. You cut off its lifeline. You understand that it's not a matter of personal preference. It is to you the difference between life and death of enjoying the new life that God gave you, not losing it, certainly, but enjoying it, living in it, living for His purpose in keeping with new heavenly priorities, or continuing to have only His pardon and never enjoy His purpose. Then Paul says, as you continue to kill off the old earthly things that are still with you, you put on every day these new character traits that belong to Jesus. Compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, and forgiveness just as Christ has forgiven us. What will that look like? Verse 14, above all these, put on love which binds everything together in perfect harmony. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts to which indeed you were called in one body and be thankful. There'll be unity among people like that. Remember, this is written to a church. In other words, though Christ died to save individuals, He also died to create a loving, peaceful, unified community, a group of people who love each other so much and forgive each other so freely that the world can't help but say, that must be Jesus. There's no way they're doing that on their own. That's the point. That's why either our testimony is lifted up or gravely damaged. When we actually live the life that Christ has placed in us, there's nothing like it on earth. It breathes grace. It surprises people. It moves people to tears of gratitude. People feel undeservedly loved and accepted because we were undeservedly loved and accepted. That happens, verse 16, when the Word of Christ dwells in us. Look at verse 16. Let the Word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. If you've noticed, that's the gratitude twice in two verses. That's the new life. That's what you're clothing yourself in. You're letting the Word of Christ, in other words, Scripture, this message, make itself at home in you. You're letting Jesus walk through the house He saved and clean it and rearrange it and furnish it for His purposes. And it's going to be painful because there's things in that old house which you dearly love that you were accustomed to from which you drew your strength and security, but there's a new owner now. 
He died to purchase you. He died to bring you as His adopted child into the family. He's in charge now, and you have not only His pardon, you will enjoy His purpose, and it's going to be wonderful. And here's the bottom line of what that looks like in actual practice. Whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through Him. All of life is transformed. Every word and deed is to be offered to Christ because you weren't saved just to enjoy God's pardon. You were saved to have a new life. It was purchased for you by Christ. It is offered to you by His grace alone. Listen carefully now. What is earthly in you was dealt with the cross of Jesus. What remains now is for you to walk out your new identity, taking your eyes day after day, choice after choice, learning to take them off this earth and looking up for your new priorities, recognizing that the stench of the old life and those tattered old rags are no longer a suitable set of clothes for you. They never were. Enjoying instead the righteousness of Christ which He died to give you and walking that out day by day by day as you daily choose to behave like what you are, a Christian. Saved from sin and saved for new life. Can we take it to the Lord in prayer, please? Would you bow your head with me? How heavenly are your priorities right now, Christian? What are you living for? The part of this teaching and study that most affected me is how ruthless am I being with the old life? How much do I coddle things that would kill me? How much am I like those kids playing with radioactive marbles, not knowing all the while what it's costing me? How consciously have you put on the character of Christ today? It's yours. It was purchased at the cross. I'm asking a different question. How purposeful, how deliberate are you to get up in the morning and say, Jesus, I'm saved by grace. Help me walk in it. Help me be compassionate and kind and meek. Help me to be forgiving of others as you forgave me. When you put on that clothing, when people see you dressed in that every single day, it will point them to the only one who does it, Jesus Christ, the Savior of the world. So if you don't have him as Savior, this is my personal invitation to you to give up on yourself, give up on the rules, whatever their name is, even if their name is Christianity, even if their name is any kind of religious system, give up on them and trust Jesus. He'll clothe you in new life. He'll give you new righteousness because it really is received, not achieved. And if you already have that, take a moment to the Lord and say, God, help me look up and help me kill off my old way of life and help me put on the new life you gave me. Lord, thank you that your salvation is so complete. It just doesn't announce that old things are forgiven. It announces that new life is purchased and available for us to walk in on a Sunday morning in church 
and on a tough afternoon at home and on the job. Give us, Lord, the grace to behave as your children. As we give this offering, help us to remember that we give because we have been given so much. We're generous and learning to be generous because you were so extraordinarily generous. When we're offended tomorrow, help us to be forgiving as you are. Make us, Lord, step by step, day by day, into the image of your Son who saved us. Amen.